Believing the Word, from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. I hope you all realise by now that as we advance through the marvellous Gospel of John, that John is continually revealing something else, something new about Jesus that builds up on what he has already revealed before. John is presenting to us the identity of the Christ, the identity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Messiah is the same word as Christ in Hebrew. Messiah is the word in in, in, uh, in Hebrew, Christ in, in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew. And Messiah simply means the anointed one. Christ the anointed one. Now as part of this unveiling, there are signs which are pointing towards the Christ, the Messiah, that reveal who he is, his identity, and that the kingdom of God is indeed here. Now at the end of chapter 4, we are brought full circle by John. The narrative began in the first verse of chapter 2 in Cana of Galilee. Well, what happened there? That's where Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. From Cana, he went down to Jerusalem, down because geographically, you know, North Pole, South Pole, that type of stuff. But it's also up because you had to go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is, is on a hill. But let's just say, from Cana he went down to Jerusalem and then on the way back he went through the Judean countryside, through Samaria and then back to Cana of Galilee. The first miracle for us that is recorded, the Bible tells us, happened in Cana of Galilee. The wedding feast. But this wedding feast is already pointing towards the great feast, the great banquet that at the end of the ages all of those who have given their life to Christ will be part of. And what does a wedding feast point to? What happens at a reception? A reception is really only, only happens after you've had the actual wedding ceremony. And what's the wedding all about? It's the wedding between the bride, which is the church, and the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. So slowly but surely we're building up to the glory of Christ as revealed and obviously it, it continues, it continues on. Now what is the setting here in verses 43 to 46? After two days, it tells us, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And once more he visited Canaan and Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. So far Jesus has had various encounters with different people. 
different individuals, Nicodemus in Jerusalem and the woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. He stayed, as we saw last week, he stayed a couple of days extra in the village of Sakkar to continue the harvest. But the harvest is ready, he continues there and people believed in him and actually declared him to be the saviour of the world, which is an, an astonishing statement. One central theme of this whole section is that Jesus makes all things new. He makes new wine so that people can enjoy the true banquet. And when Jesus cleanses the temple, he is telling us that he is the temple. That he will build the new temple. It will be destroyed and he will build it. He is the true presence of God because the temple indicated, it demonstrated the presence of God. But now he was there in real life. He was it. And he brings about the new birth. Those who believe in Jesus are born of the Spirit, born again. And this Jesus, this Messiah, brings about a new way of worship. He brings about the meaning of true worship in spirit and in truth. Temple, where people went to worship, he is the new temple. How do we worship? People went to the temple to worship. He is the one worthy of worship. The original creation we know from Genesis chapter 3 was marred through sin. And since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it was already pointing us to someone, someone very special who was coming. And he was going to undo all the wrecking that was done because of sin. And that's exactly what we're meant to see in Jesus' interaction with the official who comes to him from the village or the town of Capernaum. If there is one thing that the world in which we live needs is hope, the restoration of hope. When everything is good, hunky-dory, where we have health, wealth, peace, prosperity, freedom, all those things, there really is very little reason to hope as individuals, as a community, because it's all good, man. It's all good. But hope is best shown. Hope comes into its own when there are difficult times, when there are trials, when there are wars, when there is sickness, when, the, when everything becomes dark, then we have nothing but hope that things will get better. 
And it is usually in the midst of a crisis that we turn around and say, Lord, we need you. In our self-sufficiency, it's hard to actually even say that, Lord, we need you. Because you open the fridge, the pantry, hang on, it's all there. I don't need God. Which brings us to our next point here, the crisis. That's the setting, that's the build-up. Then we come to the crisis, verses 43 to 47. And there was a certain official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Ever since Adam disobeyed and ate of the fruit of the tree, Sin and death have reigned in a fallen creation. No one, no one can escape its grip. Nothing is immune to the effects of death. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about in in Romans chapter 8, that the whole of creation is in bondage to corruption and and decay. But even, even the even creation is longing for its deliverance. It's, it's hoping to, for the deliverance because of all the suffering. Now, as humans, we were complicit. As humans, we were complicit in bringing it about. And now we are suffering the effects along with the rest of creation. And it's in that distress that this man... This official makes his way to Jesus, desperate for help. What's the situation? Well, his son is dying. If anything is going to shake you as a parent, is seeing the fruit of those who are supposed to follow you. You know, the the old thing that uh, no sons should die before their parents, that type of stuff. No parents should have to bury their son. I think it's a line from Lord of the Rings. It's desperation time. It's heartbreaking. It's, It's horrible. That's not the way it's supposed to work. This man, this official, he lives in Capernaum and Capernaum is about 20, 25 miles from from Cana where Jesus was at this particular time. About, let's say, if you walk fast, you could probably do it in a day. But, you know, there's a few hills and all that type of stuff, so let's say a day and a half. And as soon as he hears that Jesus is in Cana, this official wants to go where Jesus is because he's tried everything, there's, nothing's worked, he's just getting worse, the desperation sets in, this is his last chance. The circumstances in this nobleman's life, this official, The circumstances in his life have radically changed. 
Before, perhaps, he had different priorities. Getting up in the world, moving on, getting promotions, and all of that type of stuff. Power, prestige, all of that. And suddenly something like this changes all of that. It's, it's scrap all of that. We now have a real problem here, a crisis. Now remember that Capernaum is the town, as we have mentioned before, is Capernaum is a town on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, right on the edge where Jesus lived. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it is more than likely that this official knew Jesus. And because Jesus used to go to the synagogue there, I reckon Jesus knew this guy, that the official heard of Jesus and even knew Jesus, but because the the rich and the powerful have their own different areas in the synagogue, it's not like here that we have the rich and the powerful mixing in with the, you know, with the lowly like us. Uh, we're all sitting together, but in, in different places you've got different sections, depending on how big the, the synagogue was. You know what I'm talking about, right? And that's one of the things that Jesus tackled about, you know, invite the, the lowly and all of this, the, the privilege. And so I reckon that they sort of saw each other cross paths, but never, never mingled. It wasn't Jesus' circle. So it appears that this guy paid little attention to Jesus before. Capernaum is not a big place. It's not, it's not a Sydney. It, it's, it's not even a Liverpool. It's, it's only maximum would have been two, 3,000 people. Everybody knew each other. More than that, the statement that John makes, and it's, it's in brackets in, in our English version, about a prophet having no honour, supports the view that I'm giving to you. That this official did not think much of Jesus back in town. And this, the fact that Capernaum was the place where Jesus lived, he Capernaum got special treatment when it comes to miracles and exposure and, and all of that. So if any place should have experienced revival like no place, no other place, it should have been Capernaum. And yet look at what Matthew chapter 11 verses 23 to 24 says. It's part of a larger section. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, we all know about Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I've seen it all. It's not through ignorance. It's not like, oh, if only you had been there. If only we had known. A family crisis can change very quickly the most hardened 
of hearts. As your typical nobleman, he was able to provide all sorts of things for his family, the usual things that money, power, prestige can buy, plenty of servants, plenty of connections. The family is basically set up because the son they and the daughters, they marry into nobility, the upper class. He's going to get the university degrees. He'll have the jobs. He'll have the positions in government and everything else. It's set up. I mean, really. And we, I, the pleb, because we, because you're not, Anyway, we think, I think, that this is the solution to our deepest problems. If only we had more money, if only we had more power, if only we had more connections, then we wouldn't have all the issues that we're having. Because that's what we aspire, more education, prestige, all that. Because we think that this is the solution to our deepest problems. If only we had more social justice, if only we were able to bring equality in our system, if only our government cared, if only, if only, if only. And he just goes on and on. But we're missing the point. But now, like the people at the wedding, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, this nobleman has come to appreciate that no earthly provision is adequate for his son's actual needs. A crisis will do that for you. A nobleman who no doubt was in the habit of giving orders here, there and everywhere, part of the royal house, he has been reduced to a beggar. Somebody who tells people what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and now he's reduced to asking for help. So verses 48 to 49, we come to the testing. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe And the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now at first, let's be honest here, it seems, it appears to be an insensitive response to a desperate man. If any one of you would ask something of me, a favour of some kind, right, whatever it is, And I would say openly, not just thinking, but openly I would say, oh, here we go again, just calling me when you need me. You don't invite me over for your barbecues or your coffees and whatever it is. You just call me when you need me. Don't we have friends like that? No, honestly, just parenthesis there, right? Don't we have people like that? 
I need help, quick. Call Bob, Paul, call somebody. What would you be thinking if I responded like that? You'd be offended, wouldn't you? Fine then, I'll just go somewhere else. Bye. Can you imagine? It, it, it's, let's be honest, I know it's Jesus, but you'd be, you'd be offended, wouldn't you? Having said that, this is not the only instance where Jesus' initial response is, is somewhat off-putting. And that's the very intention. Why? Because Jesus is testing the intentions of the heart. So here's this man who is begging Jesus to come before. He's asking Jesus to go down to Cana, to Capernaum from Cana before it's too late. But Jesus is a bit standoffish. He holds him at, at arm's length. And Jesus' response is something like this to him and to the others who were listening because he's just more than just this man. He's actually addressing the people around. And he says, you people come to me because I am able to give you certain signs and wonders. But it isn't enough, is it? Because that's not ultimately what I'm here for. I'm here to satisfy, I'm not here to to satisfy your spectator interests like magic tricks. I'm here for something much greater than that. I'm here as your saviour because what you need is salvation. That is what you really need. And of course with Jesus' reputation building and the mention there in, in the reading about the fact that Jesus performed those things in the festivals in, in Jerusalem and all of that. So he's, what he happened in Cana, so his reputation was, was gaining. People knew of him even before social media. His word spread around like wildfire about who this person was. What Jesus is doing here is that he engages this man at what this man thinks is his greatest need. He, he gets into his heart and brings it out and holds his heart in his hands. He's searching for his motivations to see if this man is more interested in the benefits that Jesus can bring to him or is he gripped by the person of Jesus Himself. Am I a Christian because of the benefits or am I a Christian because of the relationship? You watch a lot of the televangelists and everything else and it's all about the benefits, isn't it? One thing after another. But the Gospel's always calling us to the relationship, to the heart of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the king of the kingdom. And then all the other stuff will work it out. 
Is, is this man more concerned about the immediate concerns or is he thinking about the eternal things by truly responding to, to Jesus? And, and God is using, as God has many levers at his disposal, he's using adversity in order to bring him to see that which truly matters. And notice that this nobleman is addressing Jesus as sir or as, as Lord. He is suddenly displaying humility despite Jesus' response and putting him off, I suppose. He's saying, sir, or Lord. He's not used to saying that except to his, to his boss, in the royal family. You know, true faith... Let me start again. In this day and age where people tend to be wanting to be elevated, where People displayed their pride outwardly. Come first, they tell you. Always. Don't put yourself down. Don't let anyone put you down. Okay? True faith, however is prepared to embarrass itself in order to glorify Jesus. Are you insulted when people call you names because you're a Christian? Are you insulted when people call you names because you're a race? Because you can't pronounce the words in English properly? Supposedly, are you embarrassed because of where you live, your education, your job? Are you embarrassed by all of these things? And that sort of tells me already that, hang on, if you're embarrassed, then that means that you're sort of ungrateful as to the family you were born with, where you were born, what faith you have. And, and, and suddenly you will be embarrassed of your Lord and Saviour as well. How on earth would you ever be humble? if you're embarrassed about everything. That's the pride eating away at you and it's a real problem in this generation. Real problem. True faith is prepared to even suffer the humility that comes with it. We cannot, when we come to to God, you see, we need to be able to with no position, no power, we cannot demand anything. We need to be able to humbly beg for mercy. When we come before him in prayer, we are no more than beggars. We come with empty hands pleading 
at the feet of Jesus Christ. And after we come, after we come pleading and sometimes crying for days on end, what does Jesus do? Sometimes he makes us wait. He tests us. He puts us on hold. Similar to what happens when you are on your phone, if it's some government department, I shall not name them. You know which ones I'm talking about. You are caller number 75 in the queue. Oh, great. Oh. It's going to be a long morning. And then you get to it and after an hour, an hour and a half, two hours or something, and you say, I'll need to put you on hold. You've actually been on hold for an hour or two and then they put you on hold again. Or, or worse, they say, no, that's, you, need, you, you need to go to another department. Well, can't you just flick me across? No, you need to call this number. Oh, please. No, 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 don't, please, please don't do that. Don't put me on hold, please, please. I've been speaking to five machines already, five layers, and I got to a, finally you get to a human being. I say, no. But all the while you're comforted because you're listening to elevator music. <laughs> it's fantastic. Beautiful. A loved one is in need and you come to Jesus and pray to him in earnest prayer and he says, wait a minute, just wait a minute, put you on hold, I need you to listen to this Bible verse. Hang on, there's actually a sermon that your pastor preached a while ago about this. Maybe you need to go and listen to it online. I've got a sermon for you. No, I want an answer now. This is the testing stage, isn't it? God, God does this. And you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. But God's, God tests the genuineness of our faith. And at this stage, what is essential is a persevering faith. The faith that does not give up that perseveres. Yes, Lord, I'll stay on hold. Thank you. Verse 50, the expression of faith. The expression of faith. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word. I'll say it again. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. George Mueller, who uh, at a time of crisis in England, there were orphans all over the place, he started the wonderful ministry of starting orphanages uh, in England. You you probably know his story. If you don't, you need to read up on it. He was an amazing man of prayer, known for his prayer. Everybody would be sitting around a table. There was no food. You know, 50, 100, 200, 300 kids, no food, and suddenly they say, Grace, 
pray for God to deliver and there's a knock at the door and the food comes. And this is what he said. He says, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. So just notice the progression here. The man says, come down before my child dies and Jesus replies, your son will live. In the Greek, it's actually more direct. It says, your son lives. It's not your son will live, your son lives. It's a declaration right there, right then. And the words that follow are crucial because the man took Jesus at his word. And this is one of the clearest expressions of faith anywhere in the Bible. Imagine if he had responded in a way that I suspect many today would respond. Look, no disrespect, Lord. No disrespect, okay? But I've been on hold for a while now. Um, I've been let down by people before. I've been let down. So if you don't mind, can I just stay here and, and when I have confirmation from home from my servants, then I will leave you. Thank you very much. Isn't that, isn't that what you say? This confirmation? No. What did he do? He took Jesus at his word and started to walk back home. Hudson Taylor was the great missionary to to China. And uh, when he went to China, he made the voyage on a sailing vessel. It wasn't a, a cruise ship like you have today. And as it neared the channel between the southern Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra, Uh, the missionary heard an urgent knock on uh, on his door. He opened and there stood the captain of the ship. Mr. Taylor, he said, we have no wind. We are drifting toward an island where the people are heathen and I fear they are cannibals. What can I do? asked Taylor. And captain said, look, I understand that you believe in God. I want you to pray for wind. All right, captain, I will. But you must set sail. Set sail means you need to lower the sails. Why, that's ridiculous. There's not even the slightest breeze. Besides, the sailors will think I'm crazy. But finally, because of Taylor's insistence, he agreed. Now, 45 minutes later, the captain returned and found the missionary still on his knees in the cabin. And he said to him, you can stop praying now, said the captain. We've got more wind than we know what to do with. The moral of the story should be clear, right? 
What is faith? Faith is lowering the sails, ready to catch the wind. Faith is starting to walk at Jesus' word. You're heading that direction. Faith is taking Jesus at his word. And John told us that Jesus, in chapter 1, he told us that Jesus is the word become flesh. And that same pre-existent word that called the world into existence simply speaks and it happens. The one who's, who put the stars into space and calls them by name and behold it was good, it was very good and he speaks and it happens. He is the word of promise, he is the word of power He's the word that does things. He's, that's why in Spanish, instead of saying word, we say verb because it's an active thing. It's commands, things happen. Remember at the wedding in Cana? Uh, Mary said to the servants, she says, whatever he tells you, you do it. Go and do it. That's great advice. And they did it. And as they walked In faith, between here and there, the water turned into wine. So why? What he did, what he did is simply take Jesus at his word with no confirmation except the word of Jesus. So the test is not the reaction of the people to the signs and wonders The test is our reaction to what Jesus says. Because the people's attraction to the signs and the wonders, they're the crowds, they're the multitudes, they're the spectators. If he scores a goal, everybody wins, everybody follows, there's celebration. And it feels like as Christians many times we're on the losing side. That's the way it feels like. And yet Jesus says, follow my word. Do what I told you to do. Continue. This is the type of faith that God rewards. Forget the crowds, forget the spectators, forget the spectacle, all of that. You follow my word. But what about them? Don't worry about them, I'm calling you. And faith rewarded. Lastly, faith rewarded. Verses 51 to 54. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Somewhere along the way home towards Capernaum, he meets up with his servants who no doubt are desperate to let him know that his son is well. Please note that the servants didn't know what happened at Cana. They just 
come to tell him that the son suddenly got better. There were no mobile phones. So he inquires as to what time the boy was restored to health because it, was, it wasn't a gradual improvement, it was a marked improvement from death to life. It was, wow, how did that happen? He does the calculations and, does the, and discovers that Jesus had spoken the word at that very moment. There's no Hail Marys, there's no incantations, there's no handkerchiefs, blessed for five shekels. There's no amulets or things sold online that are blessed. There's no blessed water from the Jordan. Just a word. No need for physical presence. Just a word. A sovereign word from the sovereign creator is all it took. 20 miles, it could have been 200,000 miles. It could have been 200,000 light years away. It's the same word. It's the same word. Jesus speaks from a throne and it's done. And the impact... The wonderful thing is that the impact went beyond the, it went beyond the physical healing to the, to the spiritual transformation of this household. As this man was a leader in his household, he was, if you would call it, a federal head. He was responsible for the direction, the spiritual direction of the whole household, the whole family. So goes the leader, so goes the house. And the whole household believed. I wonder here, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I wonder if there is any connection here to the Gospel of Luke where Luke mentions some women who out of their means support Jesus and his disciples. And I want to take you to Luke chapter 8 verse 3. It's a a longer context, but let me just read verse 3. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. It is not beyond the realms of possibility. I'm just adding the pieces and please don't take it as gospel. I wonder if the guy was chooser because people already knew. I wonder if the wife was Joanna, that she was the mother of a kid who now lives in eternal gratitude to Jesus and in an act of service and thankfulness for what Jesus had done to her family. She now dedicates her life to serving Jesus in the best way she knows How? Eternally thankful, grateful.
drawing to a close, I want you to think about this. Years ago, I had a conversation with someone and uh, I invited him to to return to church. It was came used to come sort of on and off. And his response was, I don't need God. What has God ever done for me? This man was alive. He was sitting on millions and millions of dollars worth of property. And he was asking, what has God ever done for me? In our day we are living in dangerous times when there is an increasing sense of entitlement that people deserve this, they deserve that. The more we drift into this sense of entitlement, the further we will move away from being grateful for whatever we have, whether it's a lot, a heck of a lot, or whether it's just the daily food that God provides. The more we minister from a sense of gratitude, we will see more blessing and we will experience a transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring. I know that we all have needs of different kinds. I've mentioned them, we mentioned them. In our prayers, in our time together, I hear that. But the deepest need always will be we need more of Jesus into our lives, into our context. Whatever situation it is, whether it's the uncertainty, whether it's the, the culmination of a life and, and you're sort of asking, well, where has all this come I'm saying, well, hang on, you you are not there yet. You're not home yet. Continue to be faithful, persevere, keep going. Continue to be grateful for what God that God has delivered you up to this point. Live your life out of a sense of, of gratitude for everything that you have and maybe even gratitude for the things that you don't have. Because you don't know what trouble that could have gotten you into. And faith is saying at its most basic and simple level as I close, I need Jesus. We need Jesus. I need you, Lord. Each and every hour, I need you. Amen.